0: Hey everybody, today on the Multiply Podcast, we're talking about gender, sexuality, and the next generation. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome back or welcome to the Multiply Podcast. My name is Jared. My name is David. We're glad
1: that you have chosen to spend the next 30 minutes of your life with Mm. us. Yeah. 30 minutes you'll never get back. That's true. That's unless, true. Unless you do what I do and
0: listen to us at one and a half times,
1: then it's about twenty minutes of your life.
0: Actually, also you could try slowing us down a lot. <laughs> that we've done that multiple times. That's hilarious. That's a good laugh.
1: That's a good <laughs> laugh. I love doing the game where you slow down preachers who are famous and then try to get uh, you know people to guess who they're listening to. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Actually, um, when when Apple updated their the podcast app most recently. Um, it includes a one-and-one-quarter speed now, mm. so which is kind of nice, actually. It's, it's obviously in between one and, and, and one-and-one-half, and for some speakers, they're, they speak too fast for one-and-a-half, and, and one-and-one-quarter is perfect. Yeah, it's like so. a sweet spot. But I rarely listen to anything at, at normal speed anymore. Which makes me very impatient in person when I'm talking to people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you would do well in New York City. You would fit in well. That's right. That's what I'm preparing for. Yep. Life yep. ministry in New York City. Yeah. And here I'm... comes a
1: big announcement. <laughs>
0: Just kidding. Let's go. Hey, I will say, I will say I recently met a fan of the podcast. Oh, wow. Um, Someone I had not met. Distant he... cousin? <laughs> no, it was that we were at a conference and... and uh Someone introduced me to this. He was a pastor, and he was like, "Oh yeah." He's like, "He's like, I'm a fan. I listened to I listened to you on the podcast." I'm like, "Oh, wow, that's oh cool.
1: man, that's cool." How so, disappointed was that person when they realized that it was you and not me they were talking to? Well, he
0: he did look at me and say, "So I thought you guys were in a weight loss challenge. <laughs> <laughs> what's going What's going on?" And I was like, "Well, you should have seen me before." Yep, so,
1: I don't think we wrapped up our weight which, loss challenge conversation. Yeah. on our most recent podcast, we. We did our final weigh-in on Easter Sunday morning, mm. and, um, yeah, I I, I I won. I mean, I'd like to be more excited about it. I'd like to uh, – I would like to be able to say everybody lost so much weight and I managed to lose the most, Yeah, but it, really the truth is none of us did awesome and I did the most – Least awesome.
0: Well, you didn't do bad. No, None I mean, of us did bad. No. Well, one of us did bad. We won't mention his name. Yeah. Jay. But, <laughs> Jay Maya. The yeah. rest of us did okay. I yeah. mean, I lost 10 pounds. You lost more than that. Yeah. I got second. So we should say, listen, the Mollipi podcast came in first and second. I mean, that's pretty stinking it's a good. a big turnaround
1: because last year we were, th- we were, we were <laughs> dead last. Last and second to last. Yeah. So big year for us but I'm pretty sure I've already put about a third of that back. Well, that's Sunday that's the yeah,
0: the time of this recording we've gained all that back. So <laughs> yes. we're we're trying to gear up for next year's weight loss challenge. So. People tell me it's supposed to be a lifestyle, but I mean, what kind of it's, life m- is that. It's more fun to do a challenges like this. Right. Yeah. Listen, no.
1: if I can eat whatever I want for 10 months out of the year
0: and then diet, you know, half-heartedly for 2 months a year, well, Here's what I think. This is give people some perspective of our friend group. This is why it's so difficult to lose weight. Um, Towards the end of this challenge, this was literally one of the recommendations that we threw out. We said, what if at the end of this, we do another challenge for one week who can gain the most weight? (laughs) And I'm pretty sure we were all more excited about the potential of
1: that than we were about the losing weight. No, it's really competition more than it is even about health. It's just like, what can we do to compete with each other? And uh, and then and then my reward was you guys took me to the Chinese buffet. So <laughs> that was our reward. That was that's your that's your first love. So but yep, yeah, winner twenty twenty two weight Let's loss go. annual weight loss challenge. Congratulations, David Hurtwick. Big 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 moment. Wish I wish it. I wish I could uh, um, somehow make this into a uh, ongoing thing, but that just requires too much discipline. Yeah,
0: I believe in you. You'll do it. This is your summer.
1: Well, it's the middle of May, and um, actually, May's a fun month for both of us. we got important birthdays in May. My oldest daughter turned 14 later this week. You recently turned 45, is it? <laughs>
0: 37.
1: 37. Yeah. Wow. Yep.
0: Big year. Is it? No. <laughs> well, it feels like a total waste year. Yeah. I mean, it's right in the middle of everything, you know. Right, right. You're just over thirty five, but you're you're close. Still not closer to forty than you are yep. thirty five. So, yep. And you already were. Cl- yeah. Nah. But you
1: know, it's a. Uh, we're happy for you, man. Thirty seven years. Thank you. And Thank you. um, you share a birthday with our friend Valetta, too. So yep. You guys got to yeah uh, celebrate. Only
0: one of us though still gets confused as a college student, and I'm not going to say which one of us it is. The one without a head full of white hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no y- offense You John. said it. <laughs> he doesn't listen to this. So, well, um today actually we're going to be having a conversation about a talk that you gave recently at a conference. I don't know. This is the same conference where we, you met yeah. our biggest fan? Yeah. Um and uh you know, we were talking about what should we what what can we talk about on this podcast? And actually this will be a two episode conversation and you were just sharing with me some of the things that you've discovered recently as you've been going through a study to prepare for a talk on sexuality and gender and the next generation and you you serve as a youth director for the state of new york with the assemblies of god um the conversation of gender and sexuality is no longer of course could we call it an emerging one it's like it is the conversation yeah and um while Scripture has a lot to say on both of these issues, what I found interesting about what you've learned is that there's a lot of voices even beyond Scripture, even beyond what would be considered Christianity or the evangelical community, that have some really important things to say, um, partly to give us clarity on this conversation, but also to maybe give us some pause and some concern for some of the direction that we see things heading in. And so I think prefacing this conversation with just a genuine sensitivity and empathy towards any listeners who um, find themselves in living this conversation or uh, someone that they love living through this conversation. Nothing that we say today is, is meant to harm or hurt anyone who is feeling this or walking through this, but it is important that we can have hard conversations for the sake of health Yeah, and talk about things that maybe... Sometimes the church would prefer not to talk about. So, yeah. tell me a little bit even about like how you came to begin to study and think through what, uh, how you feel or what you believe to be true about this conversation.
0: Yeah, it's been an interesting um, journey for me, and really eye-opening and also um, scary and disconcerting for our next generation. Because of course, both of us, you know, you, you used to serve in the role that I'm in. You have. Um, a teenager and more to come soon You pastor a church filled with teens Like we really care about the next generation And um, and I already had a deep uh, worry and concern For the next generation uh, For a variety of reasons But this whole um, This period of time of really deep diving into this topic Has really upped the ante for me As far as my concern And just the overwhelming desire for The church to become aware of, of what's happening in the lives of our teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're seeing a mental health crisis like never before and it's new territory. Like they're, they are dealing with things that we never dealt with and facing things that we never faced. And oftentimes because of our generation, we're unaware of them. Like we don't even know what what they're going through, or what they're doing, or what the avenues that they're communicating on. Most parents are unaware, in large part. And so, if we're unaware, we can't help. And so, this has been a huge eye opening as I started to dive in and was asked to to talk on the, the subject I was like all right well let me really I, I feel really ill-equipped and and I should also say I still do like neither of us are experts on this no
1: in fact I almost tried to talk you out of this conversation because I was like I don't know that I have a lot to say yeah on this conversation
0: yeah we're so we're not experts we're not obviously therapists psychologists counselors any of those things um I have uh, former I've, former former athletes right I mean well, and we still dabble, but that's, yeah. I'm not sure that applies to this conversation. But want to be musicians, I and mean, we are a lot of things. Yes, but <laughs> like, I those, I, right. I have read a lot on this, and I've and I've studied a lot, and so what I'm going to share today is going to be mostly what I have read, and I'll reference some authors, and here's what they're saying, here's what some, some experts are saying, and then, of course, we'll share some of our thoughts, yeah. but...
1: And when you say, one of the things you said that I think would jump out maybe to our listeners is that young people today are facing things, going through things that previous generations didn't. Even that statement probably will become more clear as you give us some definitions of specifically related to gender dysphoria, the classic versus sort of the recent onset. Um, but maybe the most broad way to say what you said is that they're facing things in some ways, internally, they're facing things we've all faced through all of time, right. but they're facing it in a new world, a new society with new definitions and new expectations and even new pressures, right? Correct. So in some ways, what what we all face in terms of identity formation is timeless. Yep. But in terms of um, the different avenues and the language that's been provided and the paths that have been provided, and even the role of the schools in this conversation, it's a very different world. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with a little clarity. I I know that um, you found it really helpful to distinguish between um, what might be considered two different forms or two different types of gender dysphoria. So let's start there. What what have you learned in your research? So this
0: was the biggest shocking thing to me. And um, the main resource, and I would encourage everybody to, to get this book and to read this book, it's called Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. She's not a Christian or anything. She's actually a journalist who was asked to, and she started to deep dive into this issue and, um, and phenomenal book. I would have really encourage you to, um, I, she's also, she was on Joe Rogan's podcast. You can listen to that interview. She was on Jordan Peterson and I'm sure other podcasts. So, um, as I started to read her book, here's what I was shockingly shocking to me, which is what is happening right now with the transgender movement and gender dysphoria in our adolescence is different than what has happened historically with gender dysphoria. And so one of the things that she lays out in the book is essentially we have actually pretty good research for the last hundred years about gender dysphoria. We, we, we have a good clarity on what it is. We have a track record of treating it. Um, and And so kind of what we have known historically about gender dysphoria is that it is a, a, a affects a relatively um, small portion of the population. and it's almost always predominantly or was predominantly with young boys, ages two to four. And so you'd have these young boys who would present uh, a, a dysphoria or a, a dislike, an uneasiness in the their gender. So they they didn't like being boys, they wanted to be girls, mm-hmm. you know, And so um, one of the guys that's most famous, he was kind of like the godfather of gender dysphoria and understanding this is a guy named Dr. Kenneth Zucker. He's actually responsible for the team that wrote the definition of gender dysphoria in the DSM-5, which I actually just recently found out that they are currently changing. They're Mm -hmm. going to change the whole language to make it... um, different anyway. So Kenneth, Dr. Kenneth Zucker was a psychologist who was the foremost expert on this area. And in his treatment, what they would do over the last hundred years prior to the last decade is they kind of did what's called a wait and see approach where their assumption was that this was a dysphoria, meaning it was not something that was ideal or beneficial to the patient who was suffering it. And so their goal using therapy counseling, they would look at um, they kind of had this approach of like um, this is the symptom, not the main issue. And so we're going to do counseling and therapy and and help this person get beyond this. Um, And one of the things that um, they talk about is Kenneth Zucker had an amazing track record. I think it was 88% of patients that he treated during his practice, by the time that those, mostly boys, not all boys, but the time they hit adolescent puberty and beyond, they no longer had issues with gender dysphoria. So 88% of them basically worked the issue worked itself out as they matured and their bodies change and their biology changed, and they and they became um, teens. Um, even beyond that, other doctors and practices who had the same kind of approach, they saw over 80 percent of the time that kids presented with gender dysphoria, by the time they hit teenagers. Um, it, the, these issues essentially work themselves out. So you start with a very small percentage that even have this issue mm-hmm. and then an even smaller percentage that by the time they're after puberty, teenage years, that um, uh, still have it. So now I should note, Ken Zucker and, and others actually do not have an issue with adults actually having gender surgery mm-hmm. and hormone therapy and things like that. So um, I, I'm not saying my opinion on that. I'm just saying that Th- that is their view. They have no problem with adults transitioning, but they would, they would say that that's a very, very small percentage. Um, and they, they would highly not recommend any adolescents do that because of this dramatic turnaround that they saw. So that's, that's kind of what we classically have known about gender dysphoria. Well, in the last 10 years, it has shifted dramatically. So we've seen a, a, uh, 4,000, um, this is this is numbers based out of Britain because actually in the U.S. They're, they have a hard time getting numbers because we don't have universal medicine, so yeah. we don't have a, a centralized reporting system. But in Britain, for example, they've seen a 4,000% increase in the last decade of young girls, adolescent girls seeking medical help for uh, transgender, for transgenderism. So what we've seen is this massive explosion in the last 10 years, and what's interesting is it's predominantly almost almost all – with adolescent girls. Hmm. So, um, a couple of statistics that I found were interesting and these were all pulled from Abigail Schreier's book, um, from 2016 to 2017, the number of females requesting gender surgery quadrupled. Um, she quotes a, a, a doctor and researcher in there that says one of the other, other interesting thing that's happening about the phenomenon currently, which is different than classic gender dysphoria is that these, um, these girls who are coming out as transgender are doing so in groups. So it's 70 times more likely that girls are going to come out as transgender in a group together, which so not one at a time, but correct, which is totally different than historical gender dysphoria, which was totally isolated. It didn't matter what anybody okay. else around you was going to do. You felt this. now we're seeing kind of this group influence of coming out together Um which they would argue signals signifies some some different things are happening there. Um, some of the other interesting things is uh, we went from ten years ago, point one percent of high schoolers in America um, designating themselves as transgender. Which so that's about uh, um, yeah, point one, one in, or point zero one. Point uh, one. Sorry, okay. that's that's written wrong there. So it's point one. So that's about one in ten thousand to now it's um, 2% are identifying. So we went from 1 in 10,000 to 2 in 100. Wow. So it is a dramatic increase. Um, in 2007, you'll see there was, um, there was one gender clinic in the United States. Today there's well over 50 that exist. And so what what they are saying is, um, and what Abigail Schreier um, points to in her book, is that what is happening right now over the last 10 years, what we're seeing in our young teens, is not gender dysphoria in the way that we've known it. Classic gender dysphoria. Right. It's something different. There's something else happening, and they they would use the term like social contagion. That there is this. Um, I've heard people use the term. This is not to diminish, but they would say like a mind virus. So there's something psychologically happening where an idea can spread from individual to individual, mm-hmm. and so one of the things that they well. Maybe we'll wait and get to that on the why issue. But what we're seeing is there is something happening right now in our our world that is different than what has happened over the last 100 years.
1: So, you know, there's always multiple voices and perspectives on data, Mm -hmm. right? Lots of ways to interpret. If data was enough, then we would not be as divided of a country (laughs) on something like COVID, for example. That's true. So... I know you like to hear all sides of this conversation. I just kind of, that's the way you are. You know, what's the perspective on this that would say it's not social? It's not, Yeah. Um, yes, The or, or would there be some who would even say um, it's just more, it's just
0: greater awareness? That's right. That would be the argument. So they would say, yeah, no, no wonder that there's this huge increase in numbers. This was always there. But people were afraid they, they weren't comfortable. they couldn't come out. There wasn't a social acceptance. And so now that there is, um, there's just the this is actually normative. what we're seeing is normative. They were just all hidden before, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be kind of the argument. And, um, and and she lays out in her book and I've heard her, I've heard her say this, and I think the arguments are pretty good. She said the problem with that is there's a couple issues. Number one, When you look at gender dysphoria classically, as I mentioned before, it affected young boys. This this increase that we're seeing is not with, with young boys. It's predominantly with adolescent teen girls. And the majority percentage of these teen girls that are experiencing this have no history of gender dysphoria. So it's manifesting itself all of a sudden in their teenage years, their adolescent years, which doesn't align with what we know about gender dysphoria and how it operates. Mm. So, um, so that's one argument. The other argument she says is the reason why you can't say, well, it was they were always there, but now it's just socially acceptable. Is um, she's saying what we would, if that was true, what you would expect to see is a lot of boys and men, in particular who are now in their thirties and forties, who are then now coming out as transgender. Right. Because they've always had this, but they've hidden it. They've kept their secret. We're not seeing that. That's not what the statistics bear out. It's a massive increase in teens and adolescents, but not a massive increase in adults. So if that was the case, you would expect to see a huge rise across the board, but especially in, in that, you know, in our age demographic who in their argument would have been keeping it a secret all their time and now can finally come out. So, it's,
1: so what I
0: hear you saying is that the uniquely focused
1: demographic that is experiencing this is what would cause people to say there's something else happening here. Right. It's not just, this is not just, um, I don't want to misspeak here, but this is not just biology, this is not just science, it's not just mental health. Right. Um, although mental health probably, you know, how do we say something is not mental health? Yeah. Obviously, it is
0: mental health, but in a, in a different in way. a different
1: way than yeah. than the classic gender dysphoria, right? And um, also probably worth noting that as you would expect, Kenneth Zucker has his critics, <laughs> his opponents. Yeah, um, actually, um, was um, fired. You know, from serving as the he was at, over the center for addiction and mental health in Toronto and ended up getting fired from that. And later on, just to bring the story full circle, um, that organization had to publicly apologize to him and pay him a settlement because of um, some of the complaints in the review that led to his firing, or at least one of them was found to be false. And right. um, and even that review itself no longer can be seen or found online. So just to give, you know, just to let people know, like, as you would expect, there are people who, um, uh, don't appreciate his his approach, um, but there's you know he's as far as we know he's not coming at this from a religious standpoint. He's not a Christian. He's not using scripture. He's a scientist. No, right? yeah, he's sure. a psychologist and sexologist, and so
0: this is this is the guy who led the conversation for a long time. True, and and as I said before, um, both Abigail Schreier, you'll read in her book her some of her perspective, and Kenneth Zucker are advocates in certain situations for adults getting gender reassignment surgery and hormones. So they're not even opposed to that. Right. But they are opposed to doing that with adolescents because of, in their perspective, the science of what this is sure. saying. So,
1: And actually, even as I was looking this morning online, and we wanted to get into it, but like this is going to be, and maybe we're getting ahead of the conversation, but one of the headlines on one of the websites I went to involved a a mom in Florida who is suing a school district because her 13 year old daughter they began like um, I don't know what the right term would be but basically like a trans like a hormone therapy yeah some sort of a gender therapy transition um, uh, therapy that's without her knowledge her approval or her consent and there's actually multiple lawsuits right now um, around the country for this exact issue so um, there's definitely um, there's definitely complex and there's One of the concerns is that long term, some of the um, physical results, right, some of the ramifications of going through this as a teenager are quite significant. Yeah. And, you know, the potential for the future for um, young, for women and men later in life to look back and, and even feel like they were um, done a disservice yeah. in some way. And you know, that, right. that seems to be something that this could be headed
0: towards too. People say, absolutely. there's already lawsuits happening, like you said, and it'll be coming. Cause one of the, here's the unique thing about this issue is the, the shift in the, this is a medical issue, right? You're talking about prescribing teenagers hormones and in, in many cases, gender reassignment surgery. So young women are having their breasts cut off, which is permanent um they're they're taking hormones like testosterone in many of these cases, which can have a permanent effect on the body and negative negative effects and What's interesting is that these changes in many cases are being done not based on a doctor's assessment of the patient but based on the patient's assessment of themselves hmm. so we have moved to a self diagnosis model in this issue, and this is Ultimately, what um, part of like Kenneth Zucker's issue was they would call his approach to treating this, the kind of the wait and see approach as, um, oh gosh, what's the term that they would use? Um, Conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. So, and you kind of know that there's people that are connected to Christianity that got a lot of heat about conversion therapy when it came to homosexuality. Right. right? So they're, they're, they're basically lumping it into that and saying what he was doing was trying to convert people who are transgender out of being transgender, mm-hmm. um, and so essentially, like in 19 states right now in the country, if you're a therapist and someone comes into your office and says I'm transgender and you don't uh, support and encourage that, you can be at risk of losing your license, and and the the charge would be that you're per, you're doing conversion therapy, you're trying to convert them. So in no other medical instance do we let the patient come in and diagnose themselves, right? So, but that's what's happening now in our, in our clinical counseling offices, many Mm -hmm. of them. So imagine a young girl comes in and says, um, you know, maybe she's 75 pounds, right? Stick. Then comes in and says, I'm obese. I'm so fat. I need to lose weight. Well, if you're a a therapist, what would you do? You wouldn't say, okay, well, let's get you on some diet pills. Let's figure out how to get you down another 20 pounds. Right. You would say, well, okay, let's explore that. Right. Let's figure out why you're thinking you wouldn't let them self-diagnose But that's exactly what we're doing when it comes to the issue of transgender, gender dysphoria. And so instead of trying to figure out is there more to the story here, we're just allowing girls. In many cases, you don't even need a doctor's note to get testosterone. So, for example, in the state of California right now, it's legal that students can leave school to go get gender hormones. And they do not have to tell their parents the school will not tell their parents. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to pass along California where the school can actually be the provider of hormones two students so they don't have to go anywhere they can just get it at school wow so um so that's 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 what's happening right now yeah and I think there's a lot of people that are totally unaware of that yeah you know because yeah. I certainly
1: was yeah I was too and, and so like there's a cultural sensitivity to this conversation and a lot of that's birthed out of a desire to protect people who are different and protect people who have been bullied and, and obviously that's something that we resonate with but that cultural sensitivity, that cultural sensitivity, um, seems like it's also creating, intentionally or unintentionally, a space where some conversations can no longer be had that need to be had for the good of the the teenager, simply right. out of fear of um, being liable or you know, um, being you know, legal action. Yeah, and it's it's swinging right. Yep. So it's it's yeah, man. That's 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 really challenging. Um, so i know that we want to um talk a little bit about why we might be here and and so here we're moving a little bit from some research and data to more just some general observations and so uh, if you're listening maybe be a little more gracious with us on this part of it because jared wants to share just some things that he's noticed and that might give some explanation to why this significant social shift has happened in the last 10 years or so
0: yeah yeah, I think there's a couple things. Um, again, these are these are some of my assessments and things that I've read and stuff. But number one, I mean, we touched on it. There obviously is a greater level of acceptance, and and, and I would say it's moved to now celebration. So if you talk to teenagers, and in the book, um, Abigail Shire interviews a lot of teens, and they'll say things like, oh, yeah, um, being gay and lesbian at school is that's that's nothing but being transgender that's that's really what matters that's really what gets you celebrated right so it's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, coming out as gay or lesbian is like old news ah, who cares about that um so there is a there is a cultural celebration amongst teens and so if you imagine at the point in their life when they're the most unsure of themselves they lack identity if you're a teenager who doesn't fit in lacks confidence doesn't feel like you're good at anything well this is a way to get celebrated for sure in most circles so even if you're not celebrating in your family you'll get celebrated in your school you know and amongst peer groups and certainly on social media and i'll touch on that so there's a broad acceptance celebration i think the other thing is there's kind of a cultural uh celebration now of um maybe marginalization is a way to to, to do so um right so in which ways Am I a part of a group that is afflicted? And um, that's kind of a thing that we celebrate, right? So it's um, uh, another way to put it is like every kid wants a clan and a cause. And so being transgender provides both. It provides this kind of family, this pseudo family, and it provides this cause. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm a part of this minority group, and it's a cause in that we're standing up for for their rights. And and by the way, we should say like, yeah, we – we there's a part of this that is good in that people shouldn't be killed because they are different right like there should be rights and there should be things like that we're not even yeah. we're not even getting into that area right we're just saying that part of the appeal of this for teenagers is absolutely it provides them that sense of like Look at me! I'm a part of this group, standing up for this social cause.
1: And and every um, student is looking for that somewhere, yeah, right? So absolutely. So this doesn't mean that this is distinct from other things that students turn to, but it is a uh, it is currently one that is obviously has more tension on it. Um, right. And even t, uh, you know even faith movements obviously would identify with clan and cause. You know, there's yeah. a community, there's a mission. So absolutely that in of itself is not the problem. the The, the challenge is like can that become the primary reason that you make this sort of a significant physical, medical um,
0: decision? Sure, absolutely. So b- another big reason why, that obviously changes in technology, social media. Um, if you've never watched the documentary Social Dilemma, it um, I would encourage you to do it. It lays out basically the mental health crisis that has been amplified because of social media, the invention of the iPhone and what's happening in our teens. Um, so if you go on YouTube, you can f- you'll can you find transgender influencers. And um, and literally some of the language that's used is like, have you ever felt like you didn't fit in? Have you ever felt like you're not good at anything? Have you ever felt like you didn't belong? Of course, the answer to that for every single human being, certainly every teenager is yes. There's not a teenager in the world that doesn't feel those things, right? And then the, the, so some of the response is like, if you have, then you're probably transgender. Hmm. So there... This is one of those things that they're facing that we didn't. They are there are influencers, people who are on tech and social media, who are living out their life in front of them, who are saying, "I was broken. I was had anxiety. I was depressed, and I went on testosterone. I've never been happier." Yeah, right. And so it's almost evangelization. Absolutely, right? absolutely, mean, yeah, yeah. And and our teens are watching this stuff, and they're going, "Oh, maybe that's the solution," right? So that's a massive change. Um, I I mentioned the changes in therapy practice. um, So I won't get into that again, but almost all the major organizations, um, pediatric organizations have now adopted affirmative care versus what they call conversion therapy. So conversion being what we have did for a hundred years, affirmative care being if they say it, we, what they need most is us to go. Yep. You are. Um, So that's a major shift. Um, And then, um, there's this interesting thing that I read and I'll just mention it quickly where they talk about it's called they, they call it a peer contagion um, and it's kind of this massive diagnosis. So one of the things that psychologists say the human brain subconsciously will do and it in particular happens more with teen girls because they think girls are um, typically more empathetic to each other's problems they tend to carry each other's issues. And I think this is true like for young boys if, if you're coming you're like, man, my day's terrible blah blah blah, They're like, all right, well, let's go shoot some hoops or let's go do this. Right. They don't typically sit down and like have hour long conversations about their feelings. Um, Young girls do. And then they carry each other's burdens and each other's hurts and pains. And so historically, we know this is true. And one of the things that they'll say is like what ends up happening is when a when a diagnosis is presented in in a culture, people that have other underlying issues like mental health issues will look. For a diagnosis that they can latch onto and go, oh, that explains my problem. Sure. So in 1994 in Hong Kong, we saw this with anorexia. There was an article written about a girl who had died of anorexia, and they presented this issue sweeping the West. Uh, almost immediately, what they saw is this huge increase in women in Hong Kong um, Claiming to to be anorexic or having issues with anorexia and Uh one of the things that they say is that's what happens if you have these mental health issues that you're not sure what to do with your subconscious will look for a diagnosis that you can latch on to because it will help explain to you what your issue is yeah does that make sense yeah yeah. and so that's one of the things that they're saying that this is what's happening now and it's happened it's happened many times with different issues throughout history it's not just this it's right there's
1: track record of it
0: right absolutely yeah So those are some of the thoughts that I have that I think could be one of some of the very simplistic, obviously, reasons why we're we're where we
1: are. So hopefully um, for the listener, this has just been helpful in providing some clarity, um, uh, just a snapshot of where we are at um, and maybe some thoughts behind how we got here. Our next episode, we just want to talk a little bit about how do we speak to this issue and how can we be biblically faithful, culturally relevant and serve people well on all sides of this issue, right? And yeah, that's the real challenge absolutely. is that at the end of the day, everyone, uh, each of these individuals um, need uh, an encounter with Christ, need to um, have their identity found in Christ. Don't, in, don't give away that well, okay, podcast. A little, teaser, little <laughs> teaser for the next one. So, but we'll be back with that in a couple weeks to talk a little more about how can we respond
0: yeah absolutely so before we go hey real quick i know this is a weird transition (laughs) given the heaviness of the topic (laughs) but uh we do gotta we do gotta end with david's eats and and that person i ran into did tell me their favorite portion is david's eats so hey um so not only better leaders guys we got to be better eaters too so um talking to the number one weight loss champion (laughs) i think there's no better person so all right going into summer um We've done this before with you with the perfect hot dog, Mm. so we're not going to do that, but I want to know your perfect burger. What's the perfect burger Yeah, grills out?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, first off, the beef itself has to be kind of 80. I'm an 80-20 guy and need some fat in there. Totally Um, wagyu, right? uh, Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, Obviously, generously seasoned. But I think the, the biggest mistake people make is under seasoning, the actual burger. Like, The meat still has to be... the, the, the hero of the sandwich. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I'm kind of classic with the burger. First off, I'll eat it like medium or medium rare. Um, I like the bun toasted, you know? Okay. Um, And then I can, I I need onions, raw onions. Um, I'm a, I'm a pickle guy, ketchup, lettuce, tomatoes. Um, I can put an egg on a burger. I like that. I can put bacon on a burger, but really even more important to me than the egg or the bacon or guacamole or whatever else you're going to put on a burger is like a really good fresh onion and tomato and lettuce. It just need that crunch and that bite and, yeah. uh, and some pickles too.
0: All right. Well, that was very underwhelming for our people. They were hoping for more. but And kimchi sometimes. And kimchi. There you go. There you go. <laughs> thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, be sure to check out the next episode. We're going to d- uh, do a deep dive into how we handle this issue. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.